right, here we go. A uh, little bit of uh, an off week last week. Uh, normally, I do this Thursday nights. Uh, Josiah and I typically do natural rights talk Thursday nights. Um, but uh, I had to reschedule because I had a family obligation. So we are on Tuesday evening. Um, we have a long... Uh, or, or let me say, a chock-full episode scheduled for you. So I don't want to take too long here um, in the intro, but always remember, like, comment, subscribe, share, hit the notification bell, retweet, please share this out there, help with the algorithm and all the good stuff. And if you are watching on Odyssey or on Vim, uh, Vim TV, please upvote, um, help with the algorithm there, as well as the... Um, obviously, the you know the crypto benefits that come with upvoting uh, this stuff on the blockchain. So, without further ado, ooh, I got a little fi- f- feedback there. Uh, Josiah, how's it going? Hey, hey, good. How are you doing, Matt? <laughs> very good, very good. How how is it out in beautiful Montana right now? It is hot. It is yeah. hot as long as it's Yeah, <laughs> it's definitely the height of the summer. I enjoy it because uh, it'll probably be short-lived, right? I mean, you got uh, you got some rough winters out there sometimes, right? Yeah. <laughs> Generally, Missoula is, is a little bit uh, a bit lighter, but yeah. the town where I live, but yeah. I, well, enjoy, enjoy it while you can get it. <laughs> um, so we have we have an interesting uh, episode this evening. Uh, the last episode we talked about kind of the precursor to this which was uh, effectively, you know, kind of Civil War Part 1, which is kind of the lead-up. Um, and this one, we're actually going to be talking about what? Kind of the the war itself um, and then Lincoln yep. as well, right? Yeah, well, first we're going to kind of talk about the... Um, we're going to read from a document called the Causes... Um, the Declaration of Causes of Seceding States. But um, that So that's essentially, like, uh, going to give you an idea of, you know, from the South's position, what, uh, you know, what the situation was. Um, and then, yeah, yeah, the latter half, we're going to talk about Lincoln and the, uh, during the war. Okay, so, awesome. So uh, let's kick it off. So uh, where do we begin here? So with the War of the States, so the reason why it's called the War of the States is actually because, um, if you remember the signing of the Articles of Confederation and the, Dec- or, and the um, Constitution, um, the uh, states were independent nations. So essentially when the federal government refused to acknowledge the state's rights to secede um, and even committed acts of war against them, essentially it's like a group of nations attacking another group of independent nations. Right. So um, thus it was not a civil war, which is a war between organized groups within the same nation, but rather a war between the states or as some have even called it Lincoln's War. So, uh, yeah, like I said, we're going to read from uh, this document, Declaration of Causes of Seceding States. So it won't be all of the declarations, but it'll at least give you an idea, um, you know, just due to time. But it'll at least give you an idea of uh, the South's position. And so for for context in the lead up to the war, this is something that was passed by um, what the majority of the southern states or I see you highlighted Georgia. I think it's six or seven states in particular. We're going to read from four of them, maybe five of them. Awesome. So, yeah, so starting off just with Georgia. So it just says, The people of Georgia, having dissolved their political connection with the government of the United States of America, present to their Confederates and to the world the causes which have led to the separation. For the last 10 years, we've had numerous and serious causes of complaint against our non-slaveholding Confederate states with reference to the subject of African slavery. They have endeavored to weaken our security, to disturb our domestic peace and tranquility, and persistently refused to 
um, to comply with their express constitutional obligations to us in reference to that property, and by the use of their power in the federal government have striven to deprive us of an equal enjoyment of the common territories of the Republic. This hostile policy of our Confederates has been pursued with every circumstance of aggravation which would arouse the passions and excite the hatred of our people and has placed the two sections of the Union for many years past in the condition of virtual civil war. Our people still attached to the Union from habit and national traditions and averse, and averse to change hoped that time, reason, and argument would bring, if not redress, at least exemption from further insults, injuries, and dangers. Recent events have fully dissipated all such hopes and demonstrated the necessity of separation. Our Northern Confederates, after a full and calm hearing of all the facts, after a fair warning of our purpose not to submit to the rule of the authors of all these wrongs and injuries, have by a large majority committed the government of the United States into their hands. The people of Georgia, after an equally full and fair and deliberate hearing of the case, have declared with equal firmness that they shall not rule over them. A brief history of the rise, progress, and policy of anti-slavery and the political organization into whose hands the administration of the federal government has been committed would fully justify the pronounced verdict of the people of Georgia. The party of Lincoln, called the anti-slave party, while it attracts to, um, sorry, excuse me, <clears throat> the party of Lincoln, called the Republican Party, mm. under its present name and organization, is of recent origin. It is admittedly, I'm sorry, it is admitted to be an anti-slavery party. While it attracts to itself by its creed the scattered advocates of exploded political heresies, of condemned theories in political economy, the advocates of commercial restrictions, of protection, of special privileges, of waste and corruption in the administration of government, anti-slavery is its mission and its purpose. By anti-slavery it has made a power in the state. The question is, the question of slavery was the great difficulty in the way of the formation of the Constitution. While the subordination of the political and social inequality of the African race was fully conceded by all, it was plainly apparent that slavery would soon disappear from what are now the non-slaveholding states of the, the original 13. The opposition to slavery was then, as now, general in those states, and the Constitution was made with direct reference to that fact. But a distinct abolition party was not formed in the United States for more than half a century after the government went into operation. The material prosperity of the North was greatly dependent on the federal government, that of the South not at all. In the first years of the Republic, the navigating commercial and manufacturing interests of the North began to seek profit and aggrandizement at the expense of the agricultural interests. Even the owners of fishing smacks sought and obtained bounties for pursuing their own business, yet, which yet continue, and $500,000 is now paid them annually out of the Treasury. The navigating interests begged for protection against foreign shipbuilders and against competition in the coasting trade. Congress granted both requests and by, by prohibitory acts gave an absolute monopoly of this business to each of their interests, which they enjoy without diminution to this day. Not consent with these great and just advantages, they have sought to throw the legitimate burden of their businesses as much as possible upon the public. Upon the public. They have succeeded in throwing the cost of lighthouses, buoys, and the maintenance of their seamen upon the treasury, and the government now pays above $2 million annually for the support of these objects. These interests, in connection with the commercial and manufacturing classes, have also succeeded by means of subvention to mail steamers and the reduction in postage in relieving their businesses from the payment of about $7 million annually, throwing it upon the public treasury under the name of postal deficiency. The manufacturing interest entered into the same struggle early and has clamored steadily for government bounties and special favors. 
This interest was confined mainly to Eastern and uh, Middle Europe, not, I'm sorry, Eastern and Middle non-slaveholding states. Wielding these great states, it held great power and influence, and its demands were in full proportion to its power. The manufacturers and miners wisely based their demands upon special facts and reasons rather than upon general principles, and thereby um, appeased, reduced, or, or reduced much of the opposition of the opposing interest. They pleaded in their favor the infancy of their business in this country, the scarcity of labor and capital, the hostile legislation of other countries toward them, the great necessity of their fabrics in time of war, and the necessity of high duties to pay the debt incurred in our war for independence. These reasons prevailed, and they received for many years enormous bounties by the um, general acquiescence of the whole country. But when these reasons ceased, they were no less clamorous for government protection, but their clamors were less heeded. The, the country had put the principle of protection upon trial and condemned it. After having enjoyed protection to the extent from, of from 15 to 200 percent upon their entire business for above 30 years, the Act of 1846 was passed. It avoided sudden change, but the principle was settled, and free trade, low duties, and economy in public expenditures was the verdict of the, verdict of the American people. The South and the Northwestern states sustained this policy. There was but small hope of its reversal upon the direct issue, none at all. All these classes saw this and felt it and cast about for new allies. The anti-slavery sentiment of the North offered the best chance for success. An anti-slavery party must necessarily look to the North alone for support, but a united North, North was now strong enough to control the government in all its departments and a sectional party was therefore determined upon. The time and issue upon slavery um, I'm sorry, the time and issues upon slavery were necessary to its completion and final triumph. The feeling of anti-slavery, which, well, which it is well known was very general among the people of the North, had been long dormant or passive. It needed only a question to arouse it into aggressive activity. This question was before us. We had acquired a large territory by successful war with Mexico. Congress had to, had to govern it. How in relation to slavery was the question then demanding solution? This state of facts gave form and shape to the anti-slavery sentiment throughout the North and the conflict began. Northern anti-slavery men of all parties asserted their right to exclude slavery from the territory by congressional legislation and demanded the prompt and efficient exercise of this power to that end. This insulting and unconstitutional demand was met with great moderation and firmness by the South. We had shed our blood and paid our money for its acquisition. We demanded a division of it upon the line of the Missouri restriction or an equal participation of it um, in the whole of it. These propositions were refused, the agitation became general, and the public danger was great. The case of the South was impregnable. The price of the acquisition was the blood and treasure of both sections of all, and therefore it belonged to all upon the principles of <clears throat> equity and justice. So notice here that because the um, inferior and dependent races debate essentially wasn't being made to happen, Mm -hmm. um, in the in the mind of a southerner, essentially there is no position of the North that could justify, you know, these abuses. Um, specifically, you know, their refusal to perform the duties of the constitutional compact. Yeah. So, so uh, ju just to kind of like step in to um, to make sure I'm kind of following along, it sounds like the um, the problems really arise when the the North begins to take this anti-slavery tact with the emergence of the Republican Party, but as opposed to having a ideological or a philosophical debate amongst the states, the North chose um, essentially economic aggression, I guess I would call it, or 
um, favoritism that unduly or, or uh, inequitably hurt the South, or at least you know what what Georgia is saying is hurting Southern states and Southern businesses. Um, and so, and that also was a form of uh, annealing the business interests in the North and and a lot of the interests in the North, you know, to become you know, and I'll use air quotes, anti-slavery. Um, because it was in their financial best interests because of the power that was being wielded. Does, does that sound accurate? Right. Yeah, exactly. So essentially the, the North, you know, it, it had purposes that were not anti-slavery. And by the time the public got around and that was financial, right, exploiting the treasury, essentially. And by the time the public got around to noticing, you know, they put a stop to it. But obviously co-opting the public sentiment of anti-slavery could create this huge chasm that could justify you know you know bringing about the uh the control of the federal government which anti-slavery didn't have prior to right and, and um, just this also this also yeah. makes uh this also makes for the chicken and egg problem with having conversations uh with people about the civil war and you know whether it was an anti-slavery war or not it's that um it's very tough to extricate like uh, it's tough to describe the, the fact that, like, what came first, right? Like, it was the anti-slavery sentiment or was it the um, almost like the anti-competition that came about as a result of the North taking this ideological stance and then that uh, trickled down to creating an anti-slavery movement because they felt that that was, uh, you know, essentially the, you know, what they all were bound together by. When truthfully, it wasn't that at all. It was, you know, the um, uh, it was the economic gain that a lot of them were bound together by. Um, which, by the way, wouldn't that also have pushed the South to rely more heavily on slave labor because they were essentially fighting with one hand tied behind their back? Um, well, I think the argument could be made that slavery itself causes every other competitor to perform with one hand behind their back. So I'm not okay. sure. You know, because slavery is essentially like a one-time investment. You're not renting out your slaves, you know what I mean? It's not like normal labor where you have to pay for it continuously. You just get to have the labor after you pay a one-time fee. So, you know, I think, but in, in terms of like, you know, I mean, are you ready to lose, you know, maybe 50% of your income and, and survive that way? Are you ready for that right now? Like just in a moment, like, no, nobody's ready for that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Obviously well, we create our lives based on you know, our, so, our capacity. So maybe I worded it incorrectly. Uh, oh, the, sorry. <laughs> the, no, no, that's that's on me. Um, so the the barrier. So like any any uh, production organization in the South now had an even higher barrier to get over if they did want to move away from slave labor. Right. Like it became now cost prohibitive. Right. I think that it's more just the offense that, you know, by way of taxation, for things that were supposed to be legitimate under the Constitution, they've kind of been taken, you know, by special interests. They've just like how we heard from Andrew Jackson, you know what I mean? That special interests seem to take the legislation of government and bend it to their own purposes. Right. So this is, you know what I mean? I see this as just exactly the same thing where when you have a political society and you can control people, what do you do? I guess the interests that have power use that as a tool to, you know, benefit themselves. And obviously, yeah. That's why it's saying, you know, um, 
its its um, economic prosperity was dependent on the federal government because the federal government is the reason why, you know, all of that those businesses or industries were able to exist was because of the protectionism from the federal government, whereas the South was existing because of its slave labor. Right. You see what I mean? From it, yeah. its capacity to export all of these, um, uh, what are they? Not industrial materials, they're um, agricultural materials to, to England for the most part, but. Right, right. Yeah, and, and something to also note is, and again, I'm not a historian by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I, I would say this seems more consequential than any kind of like, you know, uh, anti-slave slavery marches, right? Like or rallies that were happening at the time. I know the abolitionists were doing those kinds of things, but it seems like this is more, I don't want to say more impactful, but it seems like it's, it's, um, it, it definitely applied more pressure, right? Like the North, like calculably was able to apply more pressure this way because it was an economic pressure than say, right. you know, something of public unrest. Right. Essentially, um, this the it's kind of like all of this had been happening for you know many many years like even decades right um and essentially what broke the last straw is that by using the anti-slavery sentiment in the north they got so many basically voters in the north to put key people into the federal government that now they could be hostile to the south whereas before no federal government could have maintained itself if it decided to be hostile to the south because half of it was made up of the south right see what i mean yes yeah no i follow so, you definitely yeah yeah in, okay in which case now they're going to make an argument against uh the fact that the congress doesn't have the power to do a lot of this right right so a lot of this has to do with the political debate because nobody brings it back down to that you know law of like or i mean not law that um debate of natural law you essentially have you know, the only thing we're talking about here is the political situation, which is, do you have the political capacity or power to do this? And and you know what I mean? That's why in the South's mind, their case is impregnable because no, absolutely not. There's 100% no political capacity to do this, right. right? I mean, essentially that, like it said in the beginning, you know, that the inferiority, what was it the, um, Sorry. Anyways, it said the inferiority of the, the African race was conceded by all. You know what I mean? That right there, because it was conceded by all, means you can't just flip a political society, you know, on its head and say, like, like, like I'm going to use the example later. But uh, or yeah, so we'll, we'll talk about that a little later. But I also wanted to make mention um, when you were saying that it, it, the economic was kind of the most the most impact um, it that. But you should also um, realize, like. One of the things they said in here where they were like um, using all manner of, you know, acts that would inflame the public, you know, um, that that's like we're going to talk about this in the next section. But that's essentially the foreign influence on the Civil War and the propaganda that that occurred, essentially inflaming the public's emotion. And, and you know, rather than being able to have an educated, you know, civil debate about a sociological issue. Okay, fair enough. So, yeah, so the Constitution delegated no power to Congress to exclude either party from its free enjoyment. Therefore, our right was good under the Constitution. And remember, they're referring to that territory that the, that the federal government was now trying to exclude slave owners from. Right. 
see, our rights were further fortified by the practice of the government from the beginning. In all of these aforementioned acquisitions, the policy of the government was uniform. It opened them to the settlement of all citizens of all states of the Union. They emigrated thither with their property of every kind, including slaves. All were equally protected by public authority in their persons and property until the inhabitants became sufficiently numerous and otherwise capable of bearing the burdens and performing the duties of self-government. When they were admitted into the Union upon equal terms with other states, with whatever Republican constitution they might adopt for themselves. Under this equally just and beneficent policy, law and order, stability and progress, peace and prosperity marked every step of the progress of these new communities until they entered as great and prosperous commonwealths into the sisterhood of American states. In 1820, the North endeavored to overturn this wise and successful policy and demanded that the state of Missouri should not be admitted into the Union unless she first prohibited slavery within her limits by her constitution. A bitter and protracted struggle led to the adoption of a law prohibiting slavery in a northern portion of it. The venerable Madison at the time of its adoption declared it unconstitutional. Mr. Jefferson condemned the, the um, restriction and foresaw its consequences and predicted that it would result in the dissolution of the Union. His prediction is now history. The North demanded the application of the principle of prohibition of slavery to all the territory acquired from Mexico and all the part, other parts of the public domain then and in all future time. It was the announcement of her purpose to appropriate to herself all the public domain then owned and thereafter to be acquired by the United States. The claim itself is less arrogant and insulting than the reason with which she supported it. That claim was finally disposed of by the defeat of prohibitory legislation. The presidential election of 1852 resulted in the total overthrow of the advocates of restriction and their party friends. Immediately after this result, the anti-slavery portion of the defeated party resolved to unite all elements in the North opposed to slavery and to stake their, their future political fortunes upon um, their hostility to slavery everywhere. This is the party to whom the government of the North have, um, to whom the, the North have committed the government. The majority of the people of the North demand that we shall receive them as our rulers. For 40 years, this question has been considered and debated in the halls of Congress, before the people, by the press, and before the tribunals of justice. The majority of the people in, of the North um, in 1860 decided it in their own favor. We refuse to submit to that judgment, and in vindication of our refusal, we offer the Constitution of our country and point to the total absence of any express power to exclude us. We offer the practice of our government for the first 30 years of its existence to, in complete refutation of the position that any such power is either necessary or proper to the execution of any other power in relation to the territories. We offer the judgment of a large minority, um, large minority of the people of the North, amounting to more than one third, who united with the unanimous voice of the South against this usurpation. And finally, we offer the judgment of the Supreme Court of the United States, the highest tribunal, um, judicial tribunal of our country, in our favor. This evidence ought to be conclusive that we have never surrendered this right. This conduct of our adversaries admonishes us that if we surrendered it, it is time to resume it. See, so no one's even debating whether or not someone fundamentally can have that right. They're, they're just, you know, proceeding on the premise that, you know, um, on the premise, uh, sorry, they're proceeding that like, that's not that it's a premise that you have that right, um, you know, rather than even that argument being on the table itself. Right. <clears throat> so uh, our adversaries are content if they can only injure us. The Constitution declares that persons charged with crimes in one state and fleeing to another shall be delivered up on the demand of the executive authority of the state from which they may flee. 
It would appear difficult to employ language freer from ambiguity, yet for above 20 years, the non-slaveholding states generally have wholly refused to deliver up to us persons charged with crimes affecting slave property. Our Confederates, with Punic faith, shield and give sanctuary to all criminals who seek to deprive us of this property or who use it to destroy us. This clause of the Constitution has no other sanction than their good faith. That is withheld from us. We are remedyless in the Union. Out of it, we are remitted to the laws of nations. A similar provision of the Constitution requires them to surrender fugitives from labor. This provision and the the one last referred to, sorry, the one last referred to, were our main inducements for confederating with the North States. Without them, it is historically true that we would have rejected the Constitution. In the fourth year of the Republic, Congress passed a law to give full vigor and efficiency to this important provision. The non-slaveholding states generally repealed all laws intended to aid the execution of that act and imposed penalties upon those citizens whose loyalty to the Constitution and their oaths might induce them to discharge their duty. Congress then passed the Act of 1850, providing for the complete execution of this duty by federal officers. This law, which their own bad faith rendered absolutely indispensable for the protection of constitutional rights, was instantly met with ferocious revilings and all conceivable modes of hostility. The Supreme Court unanimously, and their own local courts with with equal um, unanimity, sustained its constitutionality in all of its provisions. Yet it stands today a dead letter for all practical purposes in every non-slaveholding state in the Union. We have their covenants, we have their oaths to keep it and observe it, but the, the unfortunate claimant, even accompanied by a federal officer, with the mandate of the highest judicial authority in his hands, is everywhere met with fraud, with force, and with legislative enactments to elude, to resist, and defeat him. Claimants are murdered with impunity. Officers of the law are beaten by frantic mobs instigated by inflammatory appeals from persons holding the highest public employment in the states and supported by legislation in conflict with the clearest provisions of the Constitution and even the ordinary principles of humanity. In several of our Confederate states, a citizen cannot travel the highway with his servant who may voluntarily accompany him without being declared by law a felon and being subjected to infamous punishments. It's difficult to perceive how we could suffer more by the hostility than by the fraternity of such brethren. The public, and keep that in mind, because later when we talk about Lincoln and and all of that destruction, you're going to see how they could suffer more. Mm. People who would obviously, you know, disregard their political, you know, their observations like or political obligations, sorry, would definitely be exposed to doing other treacherous things, you know, if they can't. Yes. You know what I mean? If they literally made an agreement, that's kind of how I see this, is just they, they literally made an agreement. And as far as the South is concerned, you're you're essentially just going back on the very agreement that caused you to basically take all this taxation money from the South and put it into the North for the last like 40, you know, 60, you know, 80 years. It's, it's just wild. Yeah. Well, and and from that standpoint, you know, again, we're, we're not, uh, you know, as we talk here, we're not legislating the the you know the morality of slavery or anything like that obviously in our last episode we talked about the fact and you alluded to the statement that was made at the beginning of this that um you know the the thinking of the time you can't remove these people from right like mm-hmm. you exactly. have to understand the the tenor and the 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 you know consensus knowledge of the time and mm-hmm you know, put it in that place. 
But from that standpoint, we are talking about the fact that the 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 process that the the powers that be in the North and um, you know by way of the federal government here, they are making um, more of an argument against the process than they mm-hmm. are against, say, the morality of slavery. Right. You know, uh, it, for them, mm-hmm. it's more about um, how this is playing out uh, than the actual underlying thing that we're talking about being, yep. you know, the anti-slave movement. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that's, um, yeah, exactly. So let's see. Um, sorry, I'm looking for, um, the public law of civilized nations requires every state to restrain its citizens. And this goes back to them being independent nations, right? Restrain its citizens or subjects from committing acts injurious to the peace and security of any other state and from attempting to excite insurrection or to lessen the security or to disturb the tranquility of their neighbors. And our Constitution wisely gives Congress the power, excuse me, the power to punish all offenses against the laws of nations. These are sound and just principles which have received the approbation of just men in all countries in all centuries but they are wholly disregarded by the people of the Northern states and the federal government is impotent to maintain them. For 20 years past, the abolitionists and their allies in the Northern states have been engaged in constant efforts to subvert our institutions and to excite insurrection and servile war amongst us. Some of these efforts have received the public sanction of a majority of the leading men of the Republican party in the national councils, the same men who are now proposed as our rulers. These efforts have in one instance led to the actual invasion of the one, um, uh, of one of the slaveholding states and those of the murderers and incendiaries who escaped public justice by flight have found fraternal protection among our northern confederates. These are the same men who say the union shall be preserved. And I, I think about Biden saying, you know, now it's time to unite. <laughs> right. <laughs> we know of their treachery. We know the shallow pretenses under which they daily disregard its plainest obligations. If we submit to them, it will be our fault and not theirs. The people of Georgia have ever been willing to stand by this bargain, this contract. They have never sought to evade any of its obligations. They have hither, never hitherto sought to establish any new government. They have struggled to maintain the ancient right of themselves and the human race through and by that constitution, but they know the value of parchment rights in treacherous hands, and therefore they refuse to commit their own to rulers whom the North offers us. Why? Because their declared principles and policy, they have outlawed $3 billion of our property in the common territories of the Union, put it under the ban of the Republic in the states where it exists and out of the protection of federal law everywhere, because they give sanctuary to thieves and incendiaries who assail it to the whole extent of their power, in spite of their most solemn obligations and covenants, because their avowed purpose is to subvert our society and subject us not only to the loss of our property, but the destruction of ourselves, our wives, and our children and the desolation of our homes, our altars, and our firesides. To avoid these evils, we resume the powers which our fathers delegated to the government of the United States, and henceforth will seek new safeguards for our um, liberty, equality, security, and tranquility. So if you think back to when it was saying, um, you know, uh, that the Northerners decided the question, like the question of whether slavery was um, okay or not, um, that the North decided the question on their own, um, you know, it's like that. That's the point where you had the ability to civilly try to solve the problem that you saw if you were a northerner who was against slavery. That's a problem you see. You know, that's how. You know, that was your opportunity to do it. But instead, it's like we turn to 
all of these things that are already determined, you know, against the law, which obviously give the opposing party a just, you know, position from which they can argue their side. So it's almost like the methods created an inevitability of a conflict. You know, well, and, and so, you know, what's also this is a little far afield and, and probably fodder for maybe a future episode or something like that. But um, <clears throat> this also uh, very much is an echo of how the U.S. deals with foreign policy in countries it doesn't agree with. Right. So like um, mm -hmm. this very much so uh, many of these are tactics right out of like the regime change conflicts um, and actions that we take overseas to you know destabilize uh certain governments or um to effectively you know uh undermine their, commit, acts, I mean, of war. commit yeah. acts of war against them yeah yeah and and um you know we're hitting all of those boxes there's there's economic there is the um you know kind of the 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 inciting insurrection within you know that other mm -hmm. sovereign territory or whatever um, like all of these things and as well as, uh, you know, the, the giving quarter or, or, you know, essentially allowing people to leave when you have, you know, say like an extradition treaty agreement with them and not giving them back, mm -hmm. things like that. Um, all of that also harkens to how we deal with these other countries. Um, and we, we don't give them the opportunity to fix things internally, or at the very least, like you said, we don't even bring them to the table. So like when everyone, whenever anyone's like, uh, you know, the, the human rights <laughs> violations of China or whatever, right? right. Um, it's not like there's some kind of tribunal or, or some kind of meeting of the minds where China, the US and the other um, nations of the world are sitting there saying that, you know, this is good and this is bad. They don't even bring them to the table. They just kind of summarily uh, pass judgment and then take action. Um, well. A lot of that has to do with the fact that essentially, if you can convince the population of America to support a war, then you can, you know, support the entire industrial military complex or military industrial complex. So essentially, there's a lot of um, industrial or, you know, industry uh, interests that have propagated what you're describing. But I do think that that came mostly after the 1900s, like, mm -hmm early 1900s to lat to, you know, especially ramped up in the 50s. But um, I think that this is kind of, because conventionally, I'm sure you're, you know this, but uh, we've always had a traditional American um, philosophy is to have a non-interventionist foreign policy. So right. essentially we, well, you know, we were, effect we were effectively isolationists out. under Washington, right? Like that was, that was the idea. We weren't going to get our well, hands involved in other things, right? I don't know if we were isolationists because we, we were definitely diplomatic in that we had, you know, we were willing to talk with other nations, but I, sure. but it was not that we were going to try to impose anything, right. you know, or we're certainly not going to steal money from the American people to build a military to go fuck over there. Right. Sorry, to go mess with things over there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I find that very interesting. It's like the the yeah. tactics are extremely the same, you know, with, with a lot of yeah. the foreign policy totally. issues that we've had within the last, you know, 40, 50 years. So, um, but yeah, so, all right. So does does Mississippi see things the same way? <laughs> yes, yes, with uh, a couple other things, or, you know, laid out in a little different way. Sure. Uh, so in the momentous step which our state has taken of dissolving its connection with the government of which we were so long formed a part, 
It is but just that we should declare the prominent reasons which have incurred our, induced our um, course. Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes the, by far the largest and most important portions of, com of commerce on the earth. These products are peculiar to the climate verging on the tropical regions, and by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. So I, I put this in here because I wanted to point out that if the sociological debate had been, you know, made to happen, mm -hmm. this, this, you know, false dichotomy could easily have been defeated by presenting the idea that the black man could work the tropical regions for, you know, as a free man in, in the free market. Right? right. Like and that immediately ends the concept that you have to have slavery because, you know, but of course, instead of having this debate make, you know, really pushing it home that we all have to, you know, those people who believe in the equality of the races really had to bring it home somehow that, you know, to convince these other people. And instead of doing that, they essentially made these other people enemies and, you know, committed crimes against them. Yeah. And, so, and uh, something that we mentioned last week and um, I forget if you actually lay out um, in more detail here, but in the North, Lincoln is also facing the pressures of essentially the banking complex behind him. Um, and the banking complex doesn't want a civil conversation on slavery, I wouldn't imagine. Exactly. I would imagine they want conflict and they want war. Um, exactly. Especially We're if their northern interests win out economically as a result of that. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, we're going to talk about that next time for sure. So uh, let's see, uh, that we do not overstate the dangers of our institution. A reference to a few facts will sufficiently prove. The hostility to this institution commenced before the adoption of the Constitution. The feeling increased until 1819, I'm sorry, 1819 to 20. It deprived the South of much of more than half the vast territory acquired from France. The same hostility dismembered Texas and seized upon all excuse me, the territory acquired from Mexico. It has grown until it denies the right of property and slaves and refuses protection to that right. It refuses the admission of new slave states to the, into the Union. It has nullified the fugitive slave law in almost every free state in the Union, and it has, uh, and has utterly broken the compact which our fathers uh, pledged their faith to maintain. It advocates Negro equality socially and politically and promotes insurrection and incendiarism in our midst. It has en um, enlisted its press and pulpits and its schools against us until the whole popular mind of the North is excited and inflamed with prejudice. It has invaded a state and invested in that, that line right there that it's talking about that's referring to that propaganda. Mm -hmm. um, it has invaded a state and invested with the honors of martyrdom, the wretch whose purpose ha was to apply flames to our dwellings and the weapons of destruction to our lives. It has broken every compact into which it has entered for our security. It has recently obtained control of the government by the prosecution of, the unhallowed, of its unhallowed schemes and destroyed the last expectation of living together in friendship and brotherhood. Utter subjugation awaits us in the Union if we should consent longer to remain in it. It is not a matter of choice, but of necessity. We must either submit to degradation and the loss of property um, under this... Let's see... I think I actually have my... <laughs> Looks like worth $4 billion. Yeah. Give me one second. I think I have this. There we go. Worth four... Sorry about that. That's right. <laughs> worth $4 billion. I think my page got turned around. 
worth four billion of money, or we must secede from the union, framed uh, the union framed by our fathers, to secure this as well as every other species of property for far less cause than this. Our fathers separated from the crown of England. Our decision is made. We follow their footsteps. We embrace the alternative of separation, and for the reason here stated, we resolve to maintain our rights. South Carolina. So the people of South Carolina declared that, um, that the frequent violations of the Constitution of the United States by the federal government and its encroachments upon the, res the reserve rights of the states fully justified this state in then withdrawing from the federal union. But in deference to the opinions and wishes of the other slaveholding states, she forbear at that time to exercise this right. Since that time, these encroachments have continued to increase and further forbearance ceases to be a virtue. And now the state of South Carolina, having resumed her separate and equal place among nations, deems it to herself, deems it due to herself, to the remaining United States of America and to the nations of the world, that she should declare their immediate causes which have led to this act. In the year 1765, that portion of the British Empire embracing Great Britain undertook to make laws for the government of that portion composed of the 13 American colonies. A struggle for the right of self-government ensued, which resulted in a declaration by the colonies that they are and that they are and of right ought to be free and independent states, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. They further solemnly declare that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of the ends for which it was established, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute a new government. Deeming the government of Great Britain to have become destructive of these ends, they declared that the colonies are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved. In pursuance of this Declaration of Independence, each of the 13 states proceeded to exercise its separate sovereignty, adopted for itself a constitution, and appointed officers for the administration of the government in all its departments, legislative, executive, and judicial. For purposes of defense, they united their arms and their councils, and in 1778, they entered into a league known as the Articles of Confederation, whereby they agreed to entrust the administration of their external relations to a common agent known as the Congress of the United States, expressly declaring in the first article, <clears throat> in, the, in the first article, that each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this con um, confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. Under this confederation, the War of the Revolution was carried on, and on the 3rd of September, 1783, the contest ended, and a definite treaty was signed by Great Britain, in which she acknowledged the independence of the colonies, in the following terms, to be free, sovereign, and independent states. Thus were established the two great principles asserted by the colonies, namely the right of a state to govern itself, and the right of the people to abolish a government when it becomes destructive of the ends for which it was instituted. And concurrent with the establishment of these principles was the fact that each colony became and was recognized by the mother country, a free, sovereign, and independent state. In 1787, deputies were appointed by the states to revise the Articles of Confederation. These deputies recommended the Articles of Union known as the, Con the Constitution of the United States. The parties to whom this constitution was submitted were the several sovereign states. They were to, the, they were to agree or disagree, and when nine of them agreed, the compact was to take effect among those concurring and the general government, as the common agent, was then invested with their authority. If only nine of the 13 states had concurred, the other four would have remained, um, as they then were, separate sovereign states, independent of any of the provisions of the Constitution. In fact, two of the states did not accede, 
and the Constitution, or sorry, exceeded the Constitution until long after it had gone into operation among the other 11. And during that interval, they each exercised the functions of an independent nation. By this Constitution, certain duties were imposed upon the several states, and the exercise of certain of their powers was restrained, which necessarily implied their continued existence as sovereign states. <clears throat> But to remove all doubt, an amendment was added, which declared that the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, were reserved to the states, respectively, or to the people. South Carolina, by a convention of her people, passed an ordinance assenting to this Constitution and afterwards altered her own Constitution to conform herself to the obligations she had undertaken. Thus was established by compact between the states a government with definite objects and powers, limited to the express words of the grant. This limitation left the whole remaining mass of power subject to the clause, reserving it to the states or the people, or to the people, and rendered unnecessary any specification of reserved rights. We hold that the government thus established is subject to the two great principles asserted in the Declaration of Independence, and we hold further that the mode of, of its formation subjects it to a third fundamental principle, namely the law of compact. We maintain that in every compact between two or more parties, the obligation is mutual that the failure of one or more contracting parties to perform a material part of the agreement entirely releases the obligation of the other, and that where no arbiter is provided, each party is remitted to his own judgment to determine the fact of failure with all its consequences. In the present case, that fact is established with certainty. We assert that 14 of the states have deliberately refused for pa years past to fulfill their constitutional obligations, and we refer to their own statutes for the proof. The Constitution of the United States, in its fourth article, provides as follows. No person held to service or labor in one state, under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, be discharged from such service or labor, but shall be delivered up on the claim of the party to whom such service or labor may be due. So you can see right there, with the specific um, provision that, uh, what is it? Um, in consequence of any law or regulation therein, meaning that if a slave was to go, you know, into a northern state and the northern state that passed a law somewhere that said that they were now a free person, it the constitutional compact that all the states agreed to be um, bound by declared that that was not a, a viable means for absolving, you know, absolving um, the the idea that you know they have the right to slavery. Right. Um. So. Uh, Sorry, uh, did we finish that line? Um, I, I think, uh, yeah, the next line is, this stipulation, was so, material this stipulation was so material to the compact that without it, the compact would not have been made. The same article of the Constitution stipulates also for rendition by the several states of fugitives from justice from the other states. The general government, as the common agent, passed laws to carry into effect these stipulations of the states. For many years, these laws were executed. But an increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery has led to the disregard of their obligations, and the laws of the general government have ceased to affect the objects of the Constitution. The northern states have enacted laws which either, which either nullify the acts of Congress or render useless any attempt to execute them. In many of the states, the fugitive, um, in many of these states, the fugitive is discharged from service or labor claim, and in none of them has the state, the state, excuse me, <laughs> the state government complied with the stipulation made in the Constitution. The states of Ohio and Iowa have refused to surrender to justice fugitives charged with murder and with inciting servile insurrection in the state of Virginia. 
Thus, the constituted compact has been deliberately broken and disregarded by the non-slaveholding states, and the consequence follows that South Carolina is re released from her, her obligation. Yeah, and I, I think what's really important here that um, we, we covered back in one of the other sections was the fact that each one of these states prior to their, their inclusion or adoption of the Constitution um, operated as independent countries. And mm -hmm. it was their intent to a large extent to retain that autonomy or that sovereignty, yep. right? Uh, even yep. under the Constitution. Yes, and so, oh, with, absolutely. And, and I think a lot of people will look at this and they'll be like, you know, they would cheer on, you know, say like Wisconsin for practicing nullification, deciding not to abide by fugitive slave laws and actually harbor, you know, um, slaves that had escaped the South and, and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. the, the issue becomes, though, that the, the fugitive slave laws were not only something that were directly enacted by the federal government, but they were also... Um, you know, in place and, and effectively uh, the, the law of the land in other states where the consensus at the beginning of the union was that you will, like, not violate our laws as a sovereign state, right. uh, you know, and, and we vow to also not violate yours, right? Yeah, um, exactly, exactly and, on point. And, and so that's, that's really important. It's a tough mental, it's a tough mental barrier for people to get over because they'll say, well, you know, ignoring fugitive slave laws was was right or moral or correct, right? Um, mm -hmm. But from that standpoint, if that's your position, then you can also occupy the position that you can ignore them, just understand that you're breaking the prior agreement and that the Southern states, if they want to then sever themselves from the union because of that, both of those things can be true, right? Like you can right. be against fugitive slave laws and yeah. allow them to go their own way. And you know what? Mm -hmm. If slaves continue to leave those states and come to your state, then fine, continue yep. harboring them, right? Like, yep, because you never, or because at that point you stopped having the agreement of the performance, right? Exactly, yes. And and yep. so it, it, it's no longer a violation of the agreement. The agreement is just null and void, and now you're operating right. under a different you know, set of circumstances. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. see, this is the thing that is so weird. Why? Um, well, I mean, it's it's obviously true that, you know, as you're going to see in the next in the next episode, how much foreign influence there really was. But essentially, because we did not have that sociological debate, right, that's the only thing that can actually trump, right, um, these political arguments, right, right. because they've already started from the, pre the um, premise that the African race is an, an inferior race. So like literally that's their, you know, natural law premise. So if we're not dealing with that, you, you know, there's no political grounds that you can have that are justified because of these agreements that the states have assented to. And, or, and, know, it's, the and it's not perfectly analogous, but there's some there's some common thread there where, say, uh, coming from the United States, which has, you know, a, a, a more Judeo-Christian um, origin, right? Um, and then trying to relate or negotiate or something like that with a, another sovereign nation that has more of, say, like, you know, uh, um, a foundation in Islam, right? You can't necessarily um, uh, uh, project opinions of morality or rightness and things like that 
on that other country and then and then use that projection to then just you know unilaterally take action right like right. that is essentially that is an assault and as much as you might be uh you know ideologically opposed to what they are completely okay with you can't just go and do stuff like this you need to have that conversation with them to try and you know mm -hmm. on a more intellectual level uh, you know, get them to, to kind of not, not comply, but, you know, it's the idea of consent, right? Like you don't mm -hmm. want to coerce or force, you want, you know, actual, uh, you know, ideological change or, or some mm -hmm. level of, you know, uh, well, understanding see, to come about. Something like that example, I think is um, peculiarly hard to address just because I think even if you were to try to have some argument on the the natural law ground, they would go to a religious stance, right? And so there's nothing you can really do unless you can do it within their religion. There's nothing you can really do to change it. You know what I mean? Yeah, whereas, or, or, what's peculiar, whereas what's peculiar about the, the slavery issue, as we mentioned last time, is that we didn't have to go to war. Literally, we didn't even have to have the debate. We just had to economically subsidize the South. That yeah. would have done it. That literally would have you know, um, given the South, uh, you know, compensation for the loss that that was going to occur under the freedom of of, you know, black people. Right. So but instead of letting that happen, for whatever reason, it was like, no. And that's, uh, you know, we go back to why it's called Lincoln's war, because essentially Lincoln just said, no, look, we're going to do war instead, you know, yeah. instead of all that. Yeah. Well, and and that. Um that compensation to the the slave owners within the south probably made it less economically feasible for the bankers that were financing everything probably. that was happening behind the scenes that's, right that's so, probably you know, yeah that you've hit on the head there yeah yeah so and so which is why that was probably a non-starter because all of yeah. a sudden you know the balance sheet doesn't doesn't work out you know but well we are going to talk about later how yeah, I mean, yeah, we did talk about how they, they offered the loans, but that was loans for the war. But we're going to show later how um, the banking interests in Europe and New York basically colluded to um, put the United States in a position where they could not financially, um, you know, like get a loan in order to pay for slavery, essentially. Right. Almost create and then creating the con the propaganda, which essentially inflames the parties to say we have to have an answer on the issue now, or we're going to commit crimes, or you know what I mean. We're going to do these things, you know what I mean. So yep. yeah, yeah, the next I, I, would be an interesting, an interesting episode. You, you know, I mean, it, it's uh, I don't know if it's strong arm tactics or coercion, but I mean that's exactly what it is. It's it's a it's a multi front attack on something that you as a you know group are ideologically opposed to, you know, enforcing that on another group who obviously is not ideologically opposed to it. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, anyway. And it's, um, and it's really hardcore because, like, imagine the states never would, the southern states that had slavery never would have become a part of the United States. So it's almost like you literally, you know, what is it, bait, bait and switch, right? You got them to agree to a thing, took all this taxation money, and then essentially didn't you know do your your part of the agreement yeah or or even if it wasn't necessarily premeditated right it, it was something that at some point in time 
there's well, an, uh, there's a ideological shift between the two groups, you know, which I, I agree. I'm saying from the perspective of the Southern or, yes. you know, the slave, slave holding states, you know, yes. not necessarily from the people. The, obviously, there's going to be a multitude of individual instances which created all of the abuses and things that the states are the Southern states are claiming get justify their secession. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. and I, I'm I'm trying to uh, maybe not be Pollyanna ish, but, you know, uh, just assuming that there was a, a, a large, you know, like the majority of that negotiation was done on good faith, right? Um, and right. there, there was at some point an ideological shift between the northern states mm-hmm. and the southern states. That essentially well, means now it that... Wasn't, it wasn't so much an ideological shift as it was, because that's what it was saying in the beginning, was that the feeling of anti-slavery was very general. Mm-hmm. Meaning that, like, people, like thought you know yeah i'm not sure if i agree with that i'm not sure if that's right but they didn't like create a party that was like bent on stopping slavery right right that didn't come until we had like we were talking you know with those economic interests basically infiltrating the anti-slavery you know sentiment and creating a party out of it right 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 right. yeah yeah in 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 either case the the divorce was the easier way to settle it (laughs) right like well not really because obviously if you truly believe that the black race was equal i mean you can't stand by that injustice obviously you might have lost the perspective that this is a an independent nation so like you're not going to go fuck with france you know what i mean you're not going to be like hey we're indiana and we don't agree with slavery so we're going to go after france or you know what i mean like no that doesn't that's not no you know but you might forget that you might forget that, like, you know, Georgia is to Indiana as France is because they're independent nations. And because of this confederacy that's been gone on for, you know, 80 years, you know, the generations that existed at that time, the people who were alive and had that concept died. And, you know, we have new people who were, you know, what you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Younger, younger people who didn't have that perspective that this wasn't one nation, right? Right. And, and there was there was also still somewhat free movement between the states, right? So, yeah. uh, you know, some someone could relocate a la what, you know, New Jersey and New York New Yorkers are doing to Texas and Florida right now, um, <laughs> you know, and, and bringing those thought processes there as well. I think the other assumption, uh, and, and we can get back to, you know, what we were talking about after this, but I think the other assumption that a lot of people make, I think is that is flawed, is that if the South had been allowed to secede, that they never would have come back to the fold. I don't agree with that at all. There was, I don't either, yeah. There, yeah, there was more than enough economic argument for, you know, the, the North and the South to be joined together more so than um, I think a lot of people give credit to. Right. Um, Remember and so, what precipitated. Sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying I, I, I think that that's a, a, a improper assumption that if there was a, you know, a, a secession of the South, that the union never would have been remade. I, I think it would have been remade at some point in the future. Like I was going to say, um, if you even consider the fact that the South was completely content to have the previous policy of just opening those newly won federal territories up to settlement that then according to whomever settled enough at the time you know and then got you know organized into a state could then decide whether they were or weren't a slaveholding state or whatever now you know that 
a, a point that's of clarification like, when they're when they're talking about those newly settled areas are they talking about simply the available so like if those newly settled areas were available for say like landowners or business owners of the south to go to and and operate or own and if there was a was there ever a discussion of look you can come and operate and own you just can't bring your slaves with you was that well, part that, of that's the negotiation? kind of the, the whole point though is because of their identification with slavery it'd mm. be like saying like all right but you can't bring your horses and you'd be like what you know yeah. i mean of the time that's like an absurdity they don't have cars they don't you know what i mean you you could imagine that's like literally absurd that's like saying come without your guns right you know what i mean and i'm not saying that it's morally justified obviously with our science now with our sociology right. now we we understand about equality but back then if you're literally coming from this premise you know what i mean it would be an absurd idea you know right 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 I, I'm not sure anyone would consider it because it's it's just so nonsense in the yeah. in the mind of the people who believe. Yeah, um, I was gonna say though, so um, that the South was basically completely content with letting a natural and organic, you know, uh, determination of the question of slavery happen. The South was not like like evangelical in their slavery. They didn't. Right send emissaries out to make slavery in other places you know what i mean they were content with just like let us do what we've been doing this is what you know what i mean yeah obviously not, not, not to mention the, the fact that the abolitionist movement was alive and well in the south because it was not a a majority of people in the south that owned slaves right like right? if you and, lived in the south, south yeah. you did benefit from it but you weren't necessarily directly a slave owner and the same thing is true of the north there, there were still slaves in the North. Even one of the generals, um, I think it was Grant, had slaves. Like, a lot of slavery was going on. You know, a lot of mixed everything. You know what I mean? Yes. Which is why the whole idea that it had to come to the deaths of, like, 700,000 Americans is really tragic or, you know, infuriating. Because right. as we're going to do later, it was kind of helped. Help, help to become so, uh, you know, so open war, conf a conflict of open war rather than a conflict that could be settled civilly. Right, 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 right. Right, which, like settling, you know, opening the territories up to the states, settling, that would be considered a civil way to settle the question, you know what I mean, of whether there should or shouldn't be slavery in that area. Right. Obviously, I, I hope that nobody loses that point that I don't, like the sentiment of a person who, recognizes the equality of the black person obviously cannot like you know you don't just sit by and let your neighbor get hurt like that's absurd right, right. so it's a conflict that in my mind had to happen because but it was helped by foreign influences essentially yeah. and, it, and it definitely didn't have to happen to the extent that it did that's right that's for yes sure. because of yeah. all the propaganda that yeah because it didn't have to be so inflamed you know right. Yeah. Um, let's see. So, all right. So the ends for which, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to prompt you. Yeah. The ends oh. for which the constitution, uh, yeah. The ends for which the constitution was framed are declared by itself to be quote, to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, 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 sorry, end quote. 
These ends it endeavored to accomplish by a federal government in which each state was recognized as an equal and had as an equal and had separate control over its own institutions. The right of property and slaves was recognized by giving to free persons distinct political rights, by giving them the right to represent and burdening them with the direct taxes for three-fifths of their slaves, by authorizing the importation of slaves for 20 years, and by stipulating for the rendition of fugitives from labor. We affirm that these ends for which its government, I'm sorry, we affirm they, that these ends for which this government was instituted have been defeated, and the government itself has been made destructive of them by the action of the non-slaveholding states. Those states have assumed the right of deciding upon the property of our domestic, I'm sorry, the propriety of our domestic institutions and have, in, have denied the right of property um, established in 15 of the states and recognized by the Constitution. So see, the, the political argument is really sound, right? Mm. They have denounced as sinful the institution of slavery, and they have permitted open establishment among them of societies whose avowed object is to disturb the peace and alloin the property of the citizens of the other states. <clears throat> so think about like BLM, right? So like, is you know, no one's going to deny, right, that essentially the police all the time are violating people's rights, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But but now, as soon as BLM starts to like commit crimes. You see how we're like, wait, well, that doesn't, that's not like the way that you're supposed to deal with, you know, these people, you know what I mean? You're not supposed to just like go burn down a city. Like that's, right. that's well, not a normal uh, reaction to a crime, you know, to, well, I mean, you'd call that crime also the, the police, you know, committing crimes against people, you know, the normal way to deal with crime is not to go and burn down a city. It's to get criminals accountable. Yeah. Right. Well, I, I think uh, the other end of that was uh, when they burned down the police station, I was like, OK, well, at least that makes sense. Right. Like they're they're focusing sure, their talking, ire yeah. right, like uh, on the oppressor, whereas right. um, I'm talking about the, like stores and looting and private and, like, property, destruction, you know, uh, yep. groups just uh, what do you what would you say? Like, um, doing committing acts of violence while roaming the streets, you know? Yeah. Like, that's not how you solve crime. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And and especially so, like, um, if you are trying to win support among those that aren't necessarily you're looking at. Um, and again, ideologically, this has also been really kind of like uh, murkied up by, you know, some of the some of the critical race theory, um, because critical race theory interjected into this dynamic of authoritarian policing uh, creates a situation in which uh, you assume that if someone is not fighting alongside of you against the police, that they are effectively also your oppressor, um, which which I guess at least in part factored into folks uh, um, either compulsion or just being okay with, you know, destroying private property or, or you know, yeah, man, you know, that's, that's like that. complete just ideological subversion. That's all yeah. that is. Yeah. Which, which by the way, is that is not, I mean, it's it's not the first time it's happened. It won't be the last time it's happened. I mean, um, tons oh, of movements. It's happening yeah. right now. Yeah, I mean, t tons of movements throughout time have been uh, co-opted or subverted by certain ideological interests or political interests. And in effect, what it does over time is it, it, uh, it, it 
at, at, at best, it's an impediment. At worst, it ends up destroying the actual movement and whatever potential, you know, positive change that can come from it. So, well, what ends up happening is it debases the the traditional roots that give, you know, um, in like, okay, obviously every society that is, you know, progressive, like obviously we we progress, right? We the equality of women, the equality the equality of black people, the equal, you know, all of that. We've had a lot of even like gay people, right? So we've had a lot of progress, and progress is great. But when you basically get rid of those those traditional roots, which gave you a foundation for being able to understand how you move into that new progress, mm-hmm. you kind of destabilize the whole place. You know what I mean? And and you end up being able to do radical, insane things without that stabilizing rooted tradition. You know? Right. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we've definitely improved a lot of, a lot of things, you know, that might've been considered not so great, but, but certainly we've lost, you know, with, like you're saying with critical race theory, we've, we've severed the ties, which like just consider, you know, just fundamental property rights. I mean, just fundamental human rights. Like we, we've just completely gotten rid of that. Like in the last two years, I guess that's like a new thing. Yeah. And and I would also make the argument that, um, the, the more authoritarian governmental leadership that we've had over the last, uh, you know, handful of decades has done just the exact same thing that, that CRT is doing now. It's just a different machination of it, right? So, you know, um, the, the overreach specifically of federal governments, but also state-level governments on down has also, to a certain extent, you know, undermined those, um, you know, those key principles, right? Like the... And, yes. Yes, exactly. But I was going to say, you know, that's that's maybe about half of it. But the other half of it, don't don't underestimate the role that over the last 120 years that, you know, private foundations have had on influencing the uh, academic uh, discourse in our country. Because, yeah, yeah. Okay, so we're going to talk about that, I think. Well, well, we'll probably talk about that later. It's still yet to be whether we have space or not. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, essentially, there's a huge ideological subversion, man. We've been at war for 230 years, 250 years. So I hope that basically by the time you're getting done, you know, consuming all this information in these podcasts, you're gonna you're seeing how America has yet to just be like a country on its own doing its thing, you know and not completely at war, constantly being attacked. Right. Um, so let's see, we're, all right. So they have encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes. And those who remain have been incited by emissaries, books and pictures to servile insurrection. For 25 years, this agitation has been steadily increasing until it is now secured to its aid, the power of the common government. Observing the forms of the Constitution, a sectional party has found within that article establishing the executive department, the means of subverting the Constitution itself, just like we were talking about with the uh, the Supreme Court essentially being able to dictate, oh, no, the, 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 Supreme, or the uh, Constitution means what I say it does, not what it reads, right. not what the words mean. This sectional combination for the submersion of the Constitution has been aided in some of the states by elevating the citizenship persons who, by the supreme law of the land, are incapable of becoming citizens, and their votes have been used to inaugurate a new policy hostile to the South and destructive of its beliefs and safety. 
It is announced that the South shall be excluded from the common territory, that the judicial tribunal shall be made sectional, and that the war <clears throat> that a war must be waged against slavery until it shall cease throughout the United States. The guarantees of the Constitution will then no longer exist. The equal rights of the states will be lost. The slave-owning states will no longer have the power of self-government or self-protection, and the federal government will have become their enemy. Sectional interests and animosity will deepen the irritation. We, therefore, we, therefore, the people of South Carolina, have solemnly declared that the union heretofore existing between the state and the other states of North America is dissolved, and that the state of South Carolina has resumed her position among the nations of the world as a separate and independent state with full power to do all acts and things which independent states may have right do. And so, uh, let's see, the last one here is Texas. So, a declaration of the causes which impel the state of Texas to secede from the federal union. The government of the United States, by certain joint resolutions, proposed to the Republic of Texas then, a free and sovereign independent nation, the annexation of the latter to the former, as one of the co-equal states thereof. The people of Texas assented to and, ac and accepted said proposals, proposals and formed a constitution for the proposed state upon which the state was formally admitted into the Confederated Union. Texas abandoned her separate national existence and consented to become one of the Confederated Union to promote her welfare, ensure domestic tranquility, and secure more substantially the blessings of peace and liberty to her people. She was received into the Confederacy with her own constitution under the guarantee of the federal constitution and the compact of annexation that she should enjoy these blessings. Her institutions and geographical position established the strongest ties between her and other slaveholding states of the Confederacy. Those ties have been strengthened by association. But what of the people of the, and authorities of the non-slaveholding states since our connection with them? The controlling majority of the federal government, under various pretenses and disguises, has so administered the same as to exclude the citizens of the southern states, unless under odious and unconstitutional restrictions, from all the immense territory owned by common, in common by the state, all the states on the Pacific Ocean, for the avowed purpose of acquiring sufficient power in the common government to use it as a means of destroying the institutions of Texas and her sister slaveholding states. By the disloyalty of the northern states and their citizens and the imbecility of the federal government, infamous combinations of incendiaries and outlaws have been permitted in those states and the common territory of Kansas to trample upon the federal laws, to war upon the lives and the property of southern citizens in that territory, and finally by violence and mob law to usurp the possession of the same as exclusively the property of the northern states. The federal government, while but partially under the control of these are natural and sexual enemies, has for years almost entirely failed to protect the lives and property of the people of Texas against the Indian savages on our border, and more recently against the murderous forays of banditti from the neighboring territory of Mexico. When our state government has expanded large amounts for such purpose, the federal government has refused to reimburse therefore, therefore thus rendering our condition more insecure and harassing than it was during the existence of the Republic of Texas. These and other wrongs have um, we have patiently borne in the vain hope that return that a returning sense of justice and humanity would induce a different course of administration. So it's interesting that, that they, they say that, right? Because it's important to point out that essentially all of these states, all this time, have taken what they observe to be fundamental abuses that are not justified. And they've simply accepted them under a fraternal sense of like, all right, let's figure it out. We can we can work on this. You know, we understand you're you got problems in your own states that you can't, you know, figure out how you can perform your obligation. 
but we're willing to work with you. You know what I mean? We didn't just like open war with you because you did this or this happened, you know? And yet the same thing is not given in return, right? That like the same kind of respect, right? So um, that, that respect and fraternity among nations, right? So um, uh, let's see. Let's see. Shoot. Okay. Uh, we when we advert to the course of individual non-slaveholding states, and um, and that a majority of their citizens, our grievances assume far greater magnitude. The northern states, by solemn legislative enactments, have deliberately, directly, or indirectly violated the fugitive slave clause of the federal constitution and laws passed in pursuance thereof thereby annulling a material provision of the compact designed by its framers to perpetuate the amity between the members of the Confederacy and to secure the rights of the slaveholding states in their domestic institutions, a provision founded in justice and wisdom and without the enforcement of which the compact fails to accomplish the object of its creation. Some of those states have imposed high fines and degrading penalties upon any of their, any of their citizens or officers who may carry out in good faith that provision of the compact or the federal laws enacted in accordance therewith. In all the non-slaveholding states, in violation of that good faith and comedy which should exist between entirely distinct nations, the people have formed themselves into a great sectional party, now strong enough to, in numbers, to control the affairs of each of those states, based upon an unnatural feeling of hostility to these southern states and their beneficent and patriarchal system of African slavery, proclaiming the debasing doctrine of equality of all men irrespective of race and color a doctrine at war with nature, in opposition to the experience of mankind, and in violation of the plainest revelations of divine law. They demand the abolition of Negro slavery throughout the Confederacy, the recognition of political equality between the white and Negro races, and avow their determination and avow their determination to press on their, their crusade against us, so long as Negro, a Negro slave remains in these states. By consolidating their strength, they have placed the slaveholding states in a hopeless minority in the federal Congress and rendered representation of no avail in protecting Southern rights against their exactions and encroachments. They have proclaimed and at the ballot box sustained the revolutionary doctrine that there is a higher law than the Constitution and the laws of our federal union, and virtually that they will disregard their oaths and trample upon our rights. So this proves that the sociological debate of you know concerning inferior races is essentially being skipped over for actions that were you know already determined to be unlawful for a long, you know, long established unlawful. Well, so well, uh, why why deal with the uh, prolonged process of ideological debate when you can just use government as a cudgel to uh, your your desired end? Yeah, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so since the debate about Negro equality was not had, there was no position of the North which justified their, abuse, their abuses of the South. Yet the position of the South was more than justified given all these forms which have been long established as illegal. Um, so just so I, I was going to bring this example up earlier, but um, just as you, you might hear someone from PETA, right, say um, that you murdered a cow, right, because you, you know, you happen to eat a steak or something. <laughs> they, uh, you know, but it's not exactly murder because to you, you know, you don't really consider the killing of animals for food to be murder. Right. So, right. So, you know, it's like um, then you've got PETA essentially stealing your cows and, you know, damaging your, you know, like like burning your ranch or something. You know, it, it's definitely seen as arson. It's, you know, that's definitely theft or, you know, property damage or 
or whatever, you know, these are long established defenses. So this is essentially how the, you know, the South are framing this in their minds without that debate happening. So you can imagine like in 40 years or a hundred years or 500 years, right? Maybe we're talking about animals and how, you know, they're, you know, we can't treat them the same way. And they have now, you know, that a sociological debate concerning the status of animals, right? Mm-hmm. happens and we change our minds but like right now right um you know without going back to that sociological debate you know if people who were being a, you know that rancher <laughs> was being attacked by members of PETA just wanted to you know be like I want nothing to do with you like get out of here you know right. stay away from me and we're going to dissolve all ties right and then PETA goes like no no you don't have the right to do that like yeah. obviously right you could see war would just be an obvious next i mean it's just obvious you know what i mean what else would happen but open conflict yeah you know so uh let's see they have for years past encouraged and sustained laws lawless organizations to steal our slaves and prevent their capture and have repeatedly murdered southern citizens while lawfully seeking their rendition they have invaded southern soil and murdered unoffending citizens, and through the press, their leading men and, fana- and a fanatical pulpit have bestowed praise upon the actors and assassins in these crimes, while the governors of several of the, their states have refused to deliver uh, parties implicated and indicted for participation in such offenses upon the legal demands of the states agreed. They have, through the mails and hired emissaries, sent seditious pamphlets and papers among us to stir up servile insurrection and bring blood and carnage to our firesides. They have sent hired emissaries among us to burn our towns and distribute arms and and poison to our slaves for the same purpose. They have impoverished the slaveholding states by an unequal and partial legislation, thereby enriching themselves by draining our substance. They have refused to vote uh, appropriations for protecting Texas against ruthless savages for the sole reason that she is a slaveholding state. And finally, they have elected a president and vice president of the whole Confederacy, two men whose claims, whose chief claims. So, sorry, I, I'm going to even interrupt myself, but just think about that for a moment, that last thing. They have refused to vote appropriations for protecting Texas against ruthless savages for the sole reason that she's a slaveholding state. So imagine, like, there's drilling going on, right? Oil drilling going on. I think it's happening over in North Dakota, right? Imagine... Like, okay, California isn't happy about that, maybe, right? I don't know. I don't really know the situation, but, like, let's just say, okay, that, you know, I know the tribes aren't happy about it, but imagine, you know, like, a state isn't happy about it. Are you now going to base, you're, like, going into the halls of Congress and saying, hey, everyone, let's, you know, let's F over North Dakota because they're doing this, uh, this, um, you know, mining, or not mining, but oil, um, you know, oil extraction that we don't approve of. Right. Like what kind of crazy who would be a part of that? Who, yeah. You know what and, I mean? And like, yet, and yet that that happens every day. Like it I mean, does. You know, some of it happens just in the court of public opinion. And I'm, I'm certain it happens behind closed doors. You know? Well, the court of public opinion is at least a little better because people can all make an individual choice and be responsible for their choices. But when you have yeah. a government stealing money from people under false premises that they have the right to steal that money and then using that money to. Uh, you know, bolster special interests and harm non or, you know, those interests that don't get along or, you know, that aren't aligned to the party narrative. Well, and, and, and using, yeah, using stolen, um, what was the frame? Like the phrase was, um, I refuse to continue to fund my own subjugation. 
right? Like, so the, the idea being that if you have money stolen from you, um, it's not only just that, it's not just theft, it's also taking those monies that were stolen from you and using it to even further your oppression. Right. And it's, not it's, just further your oppression, because that would be taken in the conventional sense that we're like imposing a force down on you. But it, it's yeah. literally undermining your own psychology and human biology. Nefarious yes. criminal shit, dude. Yeah. Yes. I And and uh, and tomorrow's another day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. So, um. I also find it interesting that Texas refers to it as the Confederacy. Well, they all did. Did you notice that, actually? Because remember that the the federal union that the Constitution was, was a confederal union. Yeah, I mean, it was a confederation of states, yes. Yes, exactly. Yep. Yep. Before that was bastardized by Webster. (laughs) The definition, yeah. (laughs) So let's see. Um, Just another reason for me to not like Boston, Massachusetts, anyway. But... Anyway, what did you say? I, I said just that. another, just another reason for me to hold something against Boston, Massachusetts. I'm a Yankees fan, so I'm not oh, a big okay. fan of the Red Sox, but also Webster's. That was one of their main locations, right? It was uh, Boston, Mass, I think, or at least outside. Of it, so. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Okay, so um, let's see. All right, and finally, they have elected as president and vice president of the whole country two men whose chief claims to such high positions are their approval of these long-continued wrongs and their pledges to continue them to the final consummation of these schemes for the ruin of the slaves of, of the slaveholding states. We hold as undeniable truths that the government of the various states and of the Confederacy itself were established exclusively by the white race for themselves and their their posterity, that the African race had no agency in their establishment, that they were rightfully held and regarded as an inferior and dependent race, and in that condition only could their existence in this country be rendered beneficial or tolerable, that in this free government all white men are and of right ought to be entitled to equal civil and political rights, emphasis in the original, that the servitude of the African race as existing in these states is mutually beneficial to both bond and free, and is abundant abundantly authorized and justified by the experiences of mankind and the revealed will of the almighty creator as recognized by all christian nations while the destruction of the existing relations between the two races as advocated by our sectional enemies would bring inevitable calamities upon both and desolation sorry inevitable calamities upon both and desolation upon the the 15 slaveholding states by the secession of the six slaveholding states and the certain um, and the certainty that others will speedily do likewise Texas has no alternative but to remain in an isolated connection with the North or unite her destinies with the South. For these and other reasons, solemnly asserting that the federal constitution has been violated and virtually abrogated by the several states named, seeing that the federal government is now passing under the control of our enemies to be diverted from the exalted objects of its creation to those of oppression and wrong, and realizing that our own state can no longer look for protection but to God and our own sons, we the the delegates of the people of Texas in convention assembled have passed an ordinance dissolving all political connection with the government of the United States of America and the people thereof. So that is the end. We finally made it through that whole thing. That's the yeah. end of the, the seceding or the, uh, the causes of seceding states. I also find it interesting that Texas um, in that, and again, I don't know if this was a full reading of, of 
all of the the statements of other of the other states, but um, uh, Texas also essentially says that you know one of the reasons for their secession is also that um, uh, they feel like their hand is also kind of being forced in a way mm-hmm. because the other states are taking this action as well. Yeah, um, yeah because geographic, yeah, geographically. Yeah. And so they're essentially saying that, like, you know, we can't remain like this kind of like island uh, of of the north in the south. Right. Um, And it just so happens also these these other ideological connections exist with these states that are taking this action. But I think it's interesting that they point that out. So, well, it just goes to show you how complex everything really is. You know what I mean? That everything in propaganda tries to make it so black and white so your emotions can immediately know the answer. But right. things are not that way. When you study the actual history, you know, there's some real difficult questions to solve. And yeah. lots of people have taken, you know, to the task of trying to solve them. Some people civilly and some people not. And, you know. I, I think the other, the, the other... Uh, the other possible answer that does not sit well with a lot of people is that in many of these situations, there was no perfectly good solution, right? Like any solution would have resulted in just, you know, some, some shitty circumstances coming out of it. Well, Um, yes. I find find it interesting that they pretty much pick the worst possible solution, but (laughs) sort of, because you should understand that, you know, a couple of years into the war, I think we might even read this later, but a couple of years into the war, the uh, the North was would, ha- would have happily paid for the pro- the slave property of the South just to stop being at war. Mm. Because of all of the consequences of being at war, you know, all of the money spent on being in war, like, there were so many more negative consequences of going to war than just simply like giving an appropriation to the South to say, okay, free your slaves now. Yeah. You know? Uh, oh, okay. I, I, I don't doubt it. Um, which is also something that seems to creep into a lot of wars throughout history. There ends up well, being sure. at least some point in time during the conflict, especially the longer or, or the more heated the battle is that, yeah, at least one, if not both sides gets to the point where they're like, Look, this is becoming, you know, basically infeasible to, to, to continue well, this sure. on. We have to find some resolution, you know. Yeah, I mean, take, for example, you know, Washington and Jefferson, right? So Washington, right, he's essentially a, a general. He knows war. He's all, you know, he's he knows war. You know what yeah. I mean? And so he's not about to, he, he, you know, the Alien and Sedition Acts, right? I was just talking about this with the, with one of our researchers. So, or, um, so essentially, you know, like the fear of this alien or, you know, foreign uh, insurgency, essentially, you know, mm-hmm. basically, you know, it's a foreign enemy infiltrating your your political society. You know what I mean? Like you, people like Washington obviously use the political society to protect against those um, nefarious, be- you know, treasonish nefarious behaviors mm-hmm. but then you have someone like jefferson come into off to office right he reduces the the um he obeys the constitution and you know reduces the appropriations for the military disbands like so like de, 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 um, deconstructs most of the infrastructure but then the war of 1812 comes around and we're left 
kind of exposed, right, as a consequence. So you can, I mean, you can see there's, it's another very, you know, difficult question to understand how you deal with political, like, good men would obviously not need a government in any world, like, right. ever. Right. And the, but the actions of nefarious people who want to control other people or control resources or whatever, um, you know, they're going to abuse you, good people. And so just like out of sheer necessity to protect against that, you've seen politi throughout history, political societies use force, you know, and subjugation to, to protect against that. But of course, in America, we tried to set it different to be like, no, no, the rights of the individual, no matter what, you know, uh, are, cannot be infringed, even if right. it's, uh, you know, foreign and, you know, and so that's why Jefferson did not approve of the Alien and Sedition Acts, but right. Washington would have felt it was, you know, completely, completely appropriate. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, did, if you want, we can just go get on with it with Lincoln here. Yeah. So, uh, this is going to be interesting because this is like, you know, one of those hallowed figures from, uh, Oh, is it? <laughs> you know, U U.S. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, no, I went you know, to Lincoln Middle, Lincoln Middle uh, Elementary School. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I totally thought back of that. I was putting this together. I was like, holy crap, they totally did name the middle school after him. Yeah, and I never realized the like. It so is it. We are so indoctrinated into American patriotism. It's like the wildest thing, man. Well, and it, I, the the um. The, the other what's what's extremely um, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for, but th there is this propensity um, when we look back to some of these figures to completely ignore uh, like 99 percent of who the person was. Um, and we build this um, almost kind of like false narrative around, you know, one percent of who the individual actually was. Um, well, since he died. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and right. yeah. and it it makes for good, I guess. I don't even want to call it folklore, or, or I mean, it's more folk fiction. But um, you know, <laughs> it, it it makes for this great, like, aggrandized story or whatever. But ultimately, it's it's a net negative because people, like we said before, end up missing the nuance. They they miss the 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 granularity of well, who the person is and what they did. You know. Here's the thing with that, okay? Essentially, history, for the sake of, you know, growing that patriotic population, history is taught as if history is a, a narrative of the events and happenings of the past. When in yeah, fact, and it's absolute, right? Like, it's taught like it's absolute, yep. right? Yeah. Yep, as opposed to this idea that's more accurate, which is that history is a, um, a composition of a, a multitude of particular sources of particular perspectives. Yeah. So, yeah, definitely. So obviously, if you can, you know, create a hero out of the death of some dude to amplify your, you know, your version of propaganda and, you know, that's going to indoctrinate these kids, then wouldn't you, you know, if that was your aim? <laughs> well, look, so, uh, you know, uh, before 2019, people would have said, uh, don't be a history denier. But now we have science deniers everywhere. So, dude, you know. Trust the science and trust the history. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Man. So, so let's talk about Saint Lincoln. 
All right, so uh, this is the evidence for the from a, a publication called The Evidence for the Unpopular Mr. Lincoln. So Lincoln had won the 1860 election in November with 39.8% of the popular vote, the poorest showing by any winning presidential candidate in American history. Um, in fact, Lincoln received a smaller percentage of the popular vote than nearly all the losers of the two-party presidential elections. At the time he was sworn in, by observations of Henry Adams of the presidential Adamses, quote, not a third of the House supported him, and by public and by the published reckoning of the New York Herald that only one million of the 4.7 million who voted in November were still with him. All these indications put uh, his support in the nation at about 25%, roughly equivalent to the lowest approval ratings recorded by modern day polling. How could a man elected president in November be so reviled by February? He was a man without a history, a man almost no one knew. Because he was a blank slate, Americans at the climax of the national crisis, 30 years in coming, projected onto him everything they saw wrong with the country. To the opinion makers in the cities of the East, he was a weakling inadequate for the, um, to the needs of the democracy. To the hostile masses of the South, he was an interloper, a Caesar who represented a deadly threat to the young republic. To millions on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line, he was not a statesman, but merely a standard bearer for a vast, corrupt political system. So it was like recognized already that by this time it was vastly corrupt. Hmm. Lincoln had never, sorry, Lincoln had never administered anything larger than a two-party law office. It was the Emancipation Proclamation in September of 1862, according to the modern view, that signals the disappearance of the novice rail splitter and marks the emergence of the ultimate statesman, the great emancipator. This, however, was not the view at the time. The Chicago Times, for example, branded the Emancipation Proclamation a monstrous usurpation, a criminal wrong, and an act of national suicide. An editorial in Columbus, Ohio, the crisis asked, is not this a death, is, the, is not this a death blow to the hope of union? Um, an editorial, I'm sorry, excuse me, and declared, we have no doubt that this proclamation seals the fate of this union as it was, um, as it was and the Constitution as it is. The time is brief when we shall have a dictator proclaimed, for the proclamation can never be carried out except under the iron rule of the worst kind of despotism. William O. Stoddard, the secretary in charge of reading Lincoln's mail, wrote, director, or I'm sorry, dictator, is what the opposition, press, or orator, and orators of all sizes are calling it. Witness also the litter on the floor and the heaped up wastebaskets. There is no telling how many editors and how many other penmen within these last few days have undertaken to assure him that this is a war for the Union only, and that they never gave him any authority to run it as an abolition war. Suddenly, warnings were everywhere that just as Lincoln's elect election had sparked the secession of the South out of fear that he would abolish slavery, the Emancipation Proclamation would spark the secession of the Old Northwest, the states of Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio, now that the fear had been made real. Army recruitment, recruitment came to a halt in, these, in those territories. In response, Congress rushed through the draft law, the first federal conscription act in the history of the nation. To many, the appearance of the United States in rollers going from house to house was visible proof that the tentacles of Lincoln's government were curling around every American. <clears throat> the popular revolt, when it reached its violent culmination, came not in the Northwest, but in the nation's largest metropolis. In July 1863, in the wake of the Emancipation Proclamation and the draft law, riots broke out in New York City. A conflagration that, aside from the Civil War itself, was the largest insurgency in American history. 
When spring came, the horrible carnage of Grant's overland campaign in the wilderness of Virginia sent Lincoln's popularity again into eclipse. And now, hatred of Lincoln developed a new, deadlier character as dissenting Northerners and ground-under-heel Southerners woke to the awful um, dawn of four more years of Lincoln's abuses. Um, that is, after he uh, got reelected. It was only with his death that Lincoln's popularity soared. Lincoln was slain on Good Friday, and pastors who had for four years criticized Lincoln from their pulpits rewrote their Easter Sunday sermons to remember him as an American Moses who brought his people out of slavery but was not allowed to cross over into the promised land. And um, this coming from uh, the uh, American Daily called an American, or, sorry, Abraham Lincoln, an American tyrant. Um, during the Civil War, Lincoln continuously circumvented the law and in many cases suspended the Constitution altogether. In doing so, Lincoln denied the rights of citizens he was sworn to protect. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus, closed courts by force, and arrested citizens and elected officials without cause. Lincoln also raised troops without the consent of Congress, closed down newspapers whose writers displayed any dissent to U.S. policy. Lincoln's troops raised the South and doomed to poverty generations of Southerners for many years to come. German, I'm sorry, General Sherman's march to the sea was nothing more than a marauding rampage filled with robbery, rape, and murder. These men were less soldiers on a military mission and more common thugs on a crime spree. Northern armies brought war to women, children, and privately held property as a matter of official policy rather than as so-called collateral damage. Lincoln ordered the arrest of Baltimore police chief and police commissioners. Baltimore Mayor George W. Brown was arrested and sent to Fort McHenry. The men were incarcerated because they were they dared to publicly disagree with Lincoln and refused to carry out the president's tyrannical orders. Baltimore was placed under federal control and a military police force was formed. Both the continents of Europe and South America ended the practice of slavery, and unlike the United States of um, sorry the United States government, they did so without murdering seven hundred thousand of their own citizens. The abhorrent practice of slavery could have and would have been ended in this country without ever firing a shot. And again, we'll talk about this later when we, <clears throat> when we talk about the English abolition plan. Okay. Um, contrary to popular belief as perpetrated, as perpetuated by government schools, slavery was a national institution. It was not unique to the South. Upon his inauguration, Lincoln could have freed the slaves in the northern states, which would have put severe diplomatic pressure on the South. And so that's another thing that's interesting to note, is that the Emancipation Proclamation freed the, the slaves in the South in the seceding states. It did not free any of the slaves in any of the North states that stayed a part of the Union. <laughs> it's a joke. Well, it is until we talk about next time, because next time we're going to learn about, obviously, you know, if you are the president and you legitimately take your role as the chief of the, the military of the United States of America, which is that entity which cr was created in order to protect the states, then I could see, you know, we're going to talk about how maybe he used some of the wrong, you know, ideas, some of the wrong maneuvers, but he certainly might have had a reason for doing what he did. Mm. Um, but this sort of stuff, I don't think this can be justified. Anyways, uh, let's see. So contrary to popular, or sorry, no, wait, Lincoln's war, otherwise known as the Civil War, was much less about freeing oppressed blacks, or I think I might have skipped over something here. However, you know, um, contrary to popular belief, I think you were on the right yeah. one, weren't you? Uh, 
slavery was a national institution and was not unique to the South. Upon his inauguration, Lincoln could have sleeved, Lincoln could have freed the slaves in the northern states, which would have put severe diplomatic pressure on the South. However, Lincoln, besides being a tyrant, was also an incredible hypocrite. Lincoln's multitude of personal letters show his outright disgust for the black man and his truly racist views. Lincoln's war, otherwise known as the Civil War, was much less about freeing oppressed blacks and much more about the federal government exerting complete control over all citizens. So um, the Civil War ended with a different Civil War ended with a different outcome. Lincoln and many of his generals, oh sorry, had, had the Civil War. Thanks. Uh, ended with a different outcome. Lincoln and many of his generals would have been deservedly tried as war criminals. Lincoln's crimes. One, so Lincoln waged a war that cost the lives of 620,000 Americans, including the murder of 50,000 innocent Southern civilians. He arrested several thousand Marylanders suspected of Southern sympathies, and including, or including 30 members of the state legislature, a U.S. congressman representing Maryland, the mayor of the police um, the police, the mayor and police commissioner of Baltimore, and most of Baltimore City Council. These political detainees were imprisoned in Fort McHenry and Point, and Point Lookout without trial, in many cases for several years. He suspended the writ of habeas corpus without the consent of Congress, as required by the Constitution. He illegally shut down and confiscated the printing presses of dozens of newspapers that had spoken out against him. He reinstated and summarily promoted an army officer who had been court-martialed and cashiered by the U.S. Army for war crimes. He even had an arrest warrant issued for the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court because said justice refused to back his illegal actions. Chief Justice Robert, I'm sorry, Roger B. Taney ruled that Lincoln's actions were illegal, criminal, and unconstitutional. He invaded the South without the consent of Congress as required by the Constitution. He blockaded southern ports without a declaration of war as required by constitution and you should understand that in and of itself is an act of war so like if you were to go in and block the ports of france or something you'd be committing a, an act of war against that state or you know that other nation yeah i mean it's effectively a military embargo yeah. exactly yeah so he imprisoned without trial hundreds of newspaper editors wait yeah hundreds of newspaper editors and owners and censored all newspaper and telegraph communication he created two new states without the consent of the citizens of those states in order to artificially inflate the Republican Party's electoral vote. He ordered federal troops to interfere with northern elections to assure his party's victories. He confiscated private property, including firearms, in violation of the Second Amendment and effectively gutted the Tenth and Ninth Amendments as well. He had his generals attack U.S. cities full of women and children and burn them to the ground. So the next uh, comes from... Um, Let's see, Thomas J. DeLorenzo, who's an author um, and a professor of economics at Loyola College in Maryland. He wrote, uh, the larger bookstores devote an inordinate amount of shelf space to books about the events and personalities of the war. Ken Burns' Civil War television series and the movie Gettysburg were blockbuster hits. Dozens of, the, of new books on the, on the war are still published every year in a monthly newspaper called um, Civil War News lists literally hundreds of seminars, conferences, reenactments, and memorial events related to the war in all 50 states and the District of Columbia all year long. Indeed, many Northerners are still, quote-unquote, fighting the war in that they organize a political mob whenever anyone attempts to display a Confederate heritage symbol in any public place. Lincoln's war established myriad precedents that have shaped the course of American government and society ever since. The centralization of government power, central banking, income taxation, 
uh, protectionism, military conscription, the suspension of constitutional liberties, the rewriting of the constitution by federal judges, total war, the quest for a worldwide empire, and the notion that government is one big problem solver. Perhaps the most hideous precedent established by Lincoln's war, however, was the intentional targeting of defenseless civilians, or what is known as total war. Perhaps the most, I'm sorry, um, in 1863, there was an inter, inter, international convention in Geneva, Switzerland, that sought to codify international law with regard to the conduct of war. The convention concluded that it should be considered to be a war crime punishable by imprisonment or death for armies to attack defenseless citizens and towns, plunder civilian property, or take from the civilian population more than what was necessary, more than what was necessary to feed and sustain an occupying army. The Swiss jurist Emmerich de Vittel, the author of The Law of Nations, was the world's expert on the proper conduct of war at the time. The people, quote, the people, the peasants, the citizens, take no part in it, and generally have nothing to fear from the sword of the enemy, end quote. Vittel wrote, as long as they refrain from hostilities themselves, they, quote, live in a per as perfect safety as if they were friends, end quote. Occupying soldiers who would destroy private property should be regarded or should be regarded as savage barbarians. In 1861, the leading American expert in international law as it relates to the proper conduct of war was the San Francisco attorney Henry Halleck, a former army officer and West Point instructor whom Abraham Lincoln appointed general in chief of the federal armies in July of 1862. Halleck was the author of the book International Law, which was used as a text at West Point and essentially echoed Vittel's writing. On April 24, 1863, the Lincoln administration seemed to adopt the precepts of international law as expressed by the Geneva Convention, Vattel and Halleck, when it issued General Order No. 1, known as the Lieber Code. The code's author was the German legal scholar Francis Lieber, an advisor to Otto von Bismarck and a staunch advocate of centralized governmental power. In his writings, Lieber denounced the federal system of government created by the American founding fathers and as having created confederacies of petty sovereigns and dismissed the Jeffersonian philosophy of government as a collection of obsolete ideas. In Germany, he was arrested several times for subversive activities. The Lieber Code contained a giant loophole. Federal commanders were permitted to completely ignore the code if, quote-unquote, in their discretion, the events of the war would warrant that they do so. In other words, the Lieber Code was purely propaganda. The fact is, the Lincoln government intentionally targeted civilians from the very beginning of the war. The administration's battle plan was known as the, the Anaconda Plan because it sought to blockade all southern ports and inland waterways and starving, the, and starving the southern civilian economy. Even drugs and medicines were on the government's list of items that were to be kept out of the hands of southerners as far as possible. As early as the first major battle of the war, the Battle of First Manassas in July of 1861, federal soldiers were plundering and burning private homes in the northern Virginia countryside. Such behavior quickly became so pervasive that on June 20, 1862, one year into the war, General George McClellan, the commanding general of the Army of the Potomac, wrote Lincoln a letter imploring him to see to it that the war was conducted according to, quote, the highest principles known to Christian civilization, end quote, <laughs> and to avoid targeting the civilian population to the extent that was possible, that that was possible. Lincoln replaced McClellan a few months later and ignored his letter. <clears throat> Most Americans are familiar with General William Tecumseh, Tecumseh Sherman's March to the Sea, in which his army pillaged, plundered, raped, and murdered civilians as it marched through Georgia in the face of scant military op opposition. But such atrocities had been occurring for the duration of the war. Sherman's march was nothing new. 
1862, Sherman was having difficulty subduing Confederate sharpshooters who were harassing federal gunboats on the Mississippi River near Memphis. He then adopted the theory of collective responsibility to justify attacking innocent civilians in retaliation for such attacks. He burned the entire town of Randolph, Tennessee to the ground. He also began taking civilian hostages and either trading them for federal prisoners of war or executing them. Jackson and Meridian, Mississippi were also burned to the ground by Sherman's troops, even though there was no Confederate army there to oppose them. After the burnings, his soldiers sacked the town, stealing anything of value and destroying the rest. As Sherman biographer John Mar uh, Marzalek uh, writes, his soldiers entered residences appropriating whatever appeared to be of value. Those articles which they could not carry, they broke. After the destruction of Meridian, Sherman boasted that for five days, 10,000 of our men worked hard and with a will in that, <clears throat> in that work of destruction. With axes, sledges, crowbars, clawbars, and with fire, Meridian no longer exists. In the hard hand of war, histor um, of war, historian Mark Brimsley argues that Sherman pursued a policy quite in keeping with that of other Union commanders from Missouri to Virginia. Sherman was just the most zealous of all federal commanders in targeting Southern civilians, which is apparently why he became one of Lincoln's favorite generals. In his first inaugural address, um, Jefferson said that any secessionist should be allowed, listen to this man, Jefferson is such a pimp. In, uh, Jefferson said that any secessionist should be allowed to quote, stand undisturbed as monuments of the safety with which error of opinion may be tolerated where reason is left free to combat it. Boy. But by 1864, Sherman would announce that to the petulant and persistent secessionists, why death is mercy. Do you even hear that? That's straight up like from traditional American values to BLM subversion, dude. Well, and uh, within that context, it is also, um, I mean, uh, you know, communist regimes are built on this type of yeah um, fear Subverted. tactics and, yeah. and basically complete destruction of the will of the people yeah mm -hmm. so uh, in 1862 sherman wrote to his wife that his purpose in the war would be extermination not of soldiers alone that is the least of the trouble but the people of the south his loving and gentle wife wrote back that her wish was for a war of extermination and that all southerners would be driven like swine into the sea May we carry fire and sword into their states till not one habitation is left standing. The Geneva Convention of 1863 condemned the bombardment of cities occupied by civilians, but Lincoln ignored all such restrictions on his behavior. The, the bombardment of Atlanta destroyed 90% of the city, after which the remaining civilian residents were forced to depopulate the city just as winter was approaching and the Georgia countryside had been stripped of food by the federal army. In his memoirs, Sherman boasted that his army destroyed more than $100 million in private property and carried home $20 million more during his march to the sea. Sherman was not above randomly executing innocent civilians as part of his and Lincoln's terror campaign. In October of 1864, he ordered a subordinate General Louis uh, Watkins to go to Fairmount, Georgia, burn 10 or 12 houses and kill a few at random and let them know that it will be repeated every time a train is fired upon. Sherman's band of criminal looters sacked the slave cabins as well as the plantation houses. As Grimsley describes it, with utter disregard for blacks, that was the norm among Union troops. The soldiers ransacked the slave cabins, taking whatever they liked. A routine procedure would be to hang a slave by his neck until he told federal soldiers where the plantation owner, owner's valuables were hidden. 
General Philip Sheridan is another celebrated war hero who followed in Sherman's footsteps in attacking defenseless, defenseless civilians. After the Confederate Army had finally evacuated the Shenandoah, the Shenandoah Valley, Shenandoah Valley. Sorry for everybody who lives there. Who knows better. I apologize. In the autumn of 1864, Sheridan's 35,000 infantry, infantry troops essentially burned the entire valley to the ground. As Sheridan described it in a letter to General Grant, in the first few days, he destroyed um, over 2,200 barns, over 70 mills, had driven in front of the army over 4,000 head of stock, and have killed not less than 3,000 sheep. Tomorrow I will continue the destruction. What kind of person, dude? Yeah. It's like it's like salt, right? It's like salt on Carthage. That's right. Sorry, I'm probably. Oh yeah, yeah. No, uh, burn like, the ground and then salt it afterwards. So yeah, you can't dude, plant anything like new. Yeah. Crazy. All right. In letters home, Sheridan's troops describe themselves as barn burners and destroyers of homes. One soldier wrote home that he had personally set sixty private homes on fire and opined that and and I imagine this is not when you have, you know, fire. Um, you know what I mean? Fire service, you know, fire services. Right. Like, that's it, dude. That's like probably you're, you're probably going to starve and or die from exposure, right? From, to, mm. from the elements. Um, let's see. Um, and it was a hard, it was hard looking. It, I'm sorry. It was a hard looking sight to see the women and children turned out of doors in at this season of the year. A, a Sergeant William T. Patterson wrote that the whole country around is wrapped in flames. The heavens are aglow with the light thereof. Such mourning, such lamentations, such crying and pleading for mercy by defenseless women I never saw or want to see again. After it was all over, Lincoln personally conveyed to Sheridan the thanks of the nation. Sherman biographer Lee Kennett admitted in his biography of Sherman that had the Confederates somehow won, had their victory put them in a position to bring their chief opponents before some sort of tribunal, they would have found themselves justified in stringing up President Lincoln and the entire Union high command for violations of the laws of war, specifically for waging war against non-combatants. Unreal. Yeah. Isn't that just bad taste in my mouth? I... You know, th that that highlights what we were talking about before we even got started on this passage. It's like, um, you know, uh, history is messy, right? Like, that's always like a, a phrase that you hear thrown around. Um, and the ideological slant that a lot of people put on the conflict of the Civil War would make you think that it was, you know, gentlemen against savages when... <laughs> You know, you can't make that wow. distinction. I mean, first of all, war is never fought by gentlemen. I mean, even even when the British so, supposedly were purported gentlemen on the battlefield, it was all bullshit, right? Um, but so to that extent, like this just kind of highlights how um, you know the 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 ends like do the ends justify the means? Um, I. I I don't know. I mean, like, it sounds like I wouldn't have wanted to be a slave on that plantation when the Union Army rolled through. That's for damn sure, right? Like, I, I wouldn't want to, would, wouldn't want to, wanted to have been subjected to their tactics, you know, uh, and, and, you know, oh, they're here to save us. Well, are they? <laughs> I'm, I'm being hung until I can, you know, tell them where the master's, uh, you know, jewels are. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm... 
I, I would be hard pressed to say that I, I probably would not have wanted to be in the way of that that army. Um, oh, just lost Josiah. I'm, I'm sure he'll click back in. But um, to to expound on that point, like <clears throat> I, w war is war, and anyone who glorifies the the um, how should I put it? Like the 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 ideological you know high ground uh, for one side or the other just doesn't understand the concept of war. Um, there's also something else that, uh, and this goes back to um, some Rothbard, some of Rothbard's writings, uh, and and we touched upon it earlier here. The the intent is supposed to be that um, the the innocents, the people that don't have anything to gain, are the the ones that shouldn't have to worry like the 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 military should fight the other military and if you as an innocent civilian like while your life might be comp compromised in ways where you know uh say there's some fallout from you know damages or something like that you shouldn't be directly in the line of fire you should not be the first primary target of uh you know the the opposing military force you are not the one fighting but in this case, uh, and and look, it, this doesn't mean that the South gets off completely scot-free. There was some shitty stuff, I'm sure, that they did as well. Um, but yeah, I so hey, I, we, we, we lost Josiah for a second. But um, I was just basically saying that you know the the this concept that civilians are not supposed to be uh, the the direct target of military action is something that for a long time has been. I guess understood or, or in many cases stipulated, um, but it gets violated all the time, which which was what the Geneva Convention sought to try and remedy, right? Like actually have some a standard to it, yeah, yeah, like some some kind of justice uh, put behind it. But it kind of makes me think of like, um, say when when Rothbard in Anatomy of the State talks about things like conscription and becoming part of the military and whatnot, um, and essentially saying that you know. The, the goal of the, the the state, the powers that be, the people in power, are to make you think that you are directly threatened, when truthfully it's it's they, it's them, the, the people that sit in the seats of power that are directly threatened by other people that sit in other seats of power. Um, well, sort and of. Th sort this of. is the most... Now it's normal. Now well, it's well, what, well, what I'm saying is that th this is the worst possible manifestation of that. You've conscripted people to fight on your behalf as a person in a seat of power that's looking to either defend against others in power or usurp their power in on the part of Lincoln. And not only are you now fighting a war for them and not necessarily for you, right? But now you're also, you've become a criminal. Like they've, they've given you the orders to be a criminal on top of it. So whatever scant nobility was still left in your conscription and your fighting is now completely obliterated because now you have you have become the devil that they are um and this this is like again i mean like war is messy and that's to say that you know no one's to say that you know actors on the on the side of the south were complete gentle gentlemen and didn't sure. do anything yeah, bad right sure. but that being said you know the, obviously, the rosy picture that is painted of Lincoln and these this supporting cast is not accurate, <laughs> right. you know. And you can imagine the kind of animosity that would be there, at, you know, when they're like, "All right, you want to come back to the union?" You're gonna, yeah. 
Yeah. When I well, come you, back yeah. Home, you know, you Well, uh, well now that you lost, well, welcome back. Oh really? Thank you yeah. after you've, you know, killed exactly. my wife and and uh my the rest of my family and burned all of my assets Listen, and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Did you grow up in your town right there in New Jersey? Uh yeah, around the corner. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So now it's burned down. Imagine your whole town's burned down. Now what, dude? Yeah. And it's not like today where you could just be like, all right, we got an appropriation. We're going to rebuild. No, it's like it's fucking done, man. The people are yeah. dead. There's no one who's settled there. There's no ec economy there. There's there's nothing happening. It's like dead. Like, imagine that, right? Like, I, I yeah. literally was born here in this city, you know? Imagine. And wow. and the and, and the and the North is like, now stand and salute the, the flag, but not your flag, yep. our, like our flag, exactly. right? And you're like, and fuck not you, just like, that, you know? But, we're going to harass you and go after you if you try to put up a Confederate flag or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. How yep. crazy. And like, yep. I was trying. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just. <laughs> how, uh, I, 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 I feel like I have to go uh, hit a punching bag now or something. Right? <laughs> yeah. exactly. You know, uh, but right. I, that, that remains to be seen. I, I wish I don't have to say this because uh, just, I mean, you and I are on the same wavelength. Like, we understand that we're talking about a war that a lot of people attribute to purely anti-slavery or that, you know, that was basically what dictated a lot of the actions and that most of those actions were altruistic. When truthfully, the, the truth is anything but. People mm -hmm. might misconstrue discussions like this as, you know, advocating for or making excuses for the actions or, or the ideological positions of the South. Well, we're not making you know, excuses. We're, we're trying to put it into do context. Killing, do you think killing animals for meat is murder? I mean, do you think uh, someone has the right to burn your, uh, your, you know, your ranch down because. No, I, I definitely disagree with that. Um, but, well, but what, I mean, but what I'm saying way, is the, the ideological positions, uh, some people, a lot of people that might watch this, would extrapolate what we're talking about. Again, this goes back to like, you have to take the context of the time and leave it in that time. You can't port it into the present day. I think a lot of people will try and take our conversation and then be like, oh, well, they're now looking back at this from 2021 and you know, saying that like slavery is legitimate, like on the broad sense. And we're not saying that. No, or, just that, you know, you know, what is basically what you should gather from this is that fundamentally speaking, we were talking about independent nations. Yeah. Those independent nations with delegates, you know, selected among each other came up with a document that they said, hey, do you want to partake in this confederacy? Mm -hmm. Right. And if you do say yes and if you don't you can stay be your own you know stay as your own nation as you were yeah. and then 80 years into that agreement or rather more like 40 years into that agreement they start turning right and for the next yeah. 40 years they started you know turning their obligations on its head yeah right like they didn't try to get an amendment passed that said no more fugitive slave act hello right. like you don't just go burn down someone's house or like damage their property as a, yeah. con you know, without dealing with the, the fundamentals, you know what I mean? So that's why I like that example with PETA, because it's like, it's a perfect analogy. If, if you currently are a meat eater, maybe if, if you're a, a person who ascribes to that kind of ideology, obviously this is going to be lost on you. Sure. But if you can appreciate the idea that people currently are recognized, their right is recognized 
to eat meat, right? To kill animals and eat their meat or eat, eat their flesh. I mean, yeah. uh, everybody it's it, like me. Okay. I'd be like, these PETA people just started a war. Like it was, you know, the, the, um, racial and political and social inferiority of the cow was acknowledged by everybody at the beginning. Right. Right. You see yeah. what I mean? So in a way, I think they are completely justified in their own sphere of national, um, you know, whatever, because those people who truly believed that inferior sociology are justified on the same premise that justifies us in a lot of how we use animals and, and the earth today. Yeah, I, I completely I mean? agree with you. I think. But you know, certainly the... slavery is wrong. It's not justified. It, it is morally wrong. Black people are people. Obviously, I'm Irish. I'm not. I don't feel like we're an inferior race. You know, like right. certainly we're not saying it was moral. We're saying it was um justified in their perspective right, right. so that it created an inevitability the war as an inevitability is the point here right mm -hmm. we're trying to say like it was like they the foreign enemies really wanted it to happen you know yeah. and the north really wanted to use the federal government for self-aggrandizement and protectionism yes you know yeah and, and so. um to to that extent um yeah I, I agree with you in in the context of that time period the the uh, the the circumstances of that time period cannot be ported into 2021. And so anyone who has a conversation about the Civil War, and if they take the position that, you know, like we're talking about here, that in the context of that time period, the South was not unwarranted in their actions or their ideological that's, positions, right? That's but exactly right. Some people will look at that and they will automatically try and make that, or they will make that logical leap and be like, oh, well, so that means that they, they would be okay if in the present day slavery existed. And I think that's, okay, that's not true at all. Let's, right? let's ask, what about slavery in other countries right now? I don't hear you talking about, you know, getting together and making a force or appropriations for going and stopping slavery and fucking you know territories in the middle east or or whatever right. like like aren't i mean what are you talking about what are yeah. we talking about like, <laughs> yeah. we are in another nation if we're gonna which we're gonna come out of our own self-government and we're gonna govern other nations why would that not be consistent and we're governing other you know you know what i mean it's obviously just emotional right that and, that reaction and, and it is the um it is the uh, resorting to the most convenient conclusion, right? Or or the least well, nuanced, right? Yeah, propaganda you know, makes. Like I said, it, it it draws very clear and simple lines so that you can immediately have your emotions choose a side. Yeah, which yeah. by the way, uh, me being, um, me being an anarchist, in this scenario, I can see. Uh, the, the North being warranted in participating in nullification, um, the South being warranted in seceding as a result of it, and then also well, individual like, slaves themselves, because now, again, in, in the context of today, but even like if I put myself into the position of a slave in that time period, which again, which is almost impossible, but I would think that I personally would be warranted in becoming a fugitive slave to fight for my freedom and my liberty and and leaving and running somewhere right and like now all of those things a criminal all, all of those things can be true right like all of them mm -hmm. can exist but the problem becomes 
when someone tries to take all of those things and just wipe them off the table and just try and put it in the context of slavery bad, South bad, you know, North was in the right because they were trying to end slavery, right? Um, And and I think hopefully that's what people will get away from this conversation. Wouldn't it make more sense for the people of the North to put their efforts around, you know, the anti-slavery efforts, right? If it wasn't about open conflict with the South, but rather was about actually getting, because I do believe that there were people who literally recognized that black people were equal, that could see it for themselves with black people living right there, doing a normal day, living. Yeah, it just wasn't the consensus. Yeah. Right. Well, in other places, sure. But I mean, I'm saying for them, you know what I mean? They would be, you know, just like, like, like they, they would not be able to help themselves in having to help the, that person. I mean, having to help the slave, the enslaved population. Sure. But it's just my point with it is that it, it would have made so much more sense to help it by way of those debates so that you could mm-hmm. actually have the states themselves choose to end slavery and not because obviously you see, like I said, there's all these bad con- consequences from yeah. having it go to war between nations as opposed to just like finding a way to figure it out civilly. You know what I mean? But obviously no one can deny, like I'm a person who, if I saw someone else being whatever, you know, being uh, their rights being violated, I suppose Mm -hmm. is the most fundamental way you could put it. Mm -hmm. I would absolutely run to be, you know what I mean? But I don't know that I would have the same conception in a political sense saying, I believe my political organization or society should intervene in other political organizations or society. Right. You know what I mean? I think a group of people in a particular political society have it complex and difficult enough trying to figure things out themselves. They don't need another thing coming in and, and who doesn't have, who's not close to it, who's yeah. not close to the problem or the issue or the situation, who knows way less, who has other interests. You know what I mean? Like, no, nothing about that is better. Yeah. You know, which which which, by the way, going back to that foreign policy kind of parallel, right, like the mirroring of that, um, taking that uh, interventionist track without having that, you know, sociological conversation or that ideological conversation mm-hmm. um, further radicalizes the the populations within the South because they double down on the positions yep. because they feel attacked without any ability for them to come to the yep. the, to come the to resolution the themselves. Yeah. yeah, 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 to a civil defense, to be like, yeah, to actually be engaged on why they think they have the right to do this. Yeah, right. Yep. So just like just like with De Las Casas, right? It's almost so retarded that, that the North. I mean, obviously, when you understand that it's the foreign powers putting propaganda in so that there is a conflict. It, it makes more sense why the North didn't take this route. But I mean, just with the establishment of the, um, what was it, Sublimadu from uh, uh, the Pope, right? Where he mm-hmm. has established that the Native Americans were rational beings, meaning all Christian nations no longer could justifiably enslave or war with the natives. You know what I mean? Something could so have been done like that. You could easily have, you know what I mean, worked, put your effort into not burning, you know, slave property or whatever yep now again i agree with if you're a dude who doesn't believe in slavery and you're freeing a black person i believe that that's appropriate Mm -hmm. but 
again, efforts that would have been more effective, obviously, would have been some kind of determination that could have protected the, the slaves, like the 13th Amendment ended up doing. Yeah, and, and, well, the and 13th Amendment. The, there's also a very big importance between drawing that distinction between state or government actions and actions of an individual, right? Mm -hmm. That is always a very core conversation that needs to be had or, or yeah. that distinction needs to be made in any of these situations, right? Like, I mean, both you and I are on board. We would be okay with the actions of, we'll you know, sovereign I mean, individuals be... fighting this fight without necessarily the, 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 the um, interventionist or the insurrectionist actions of the northern states acting as, you know, state governments mm -hmm. uh, doing those things. Yeah. Imagine, I was going to say, for me, if it came to, you know, obviously you would not want to have open conflict or commit crimes against people, right? So what you would do first, obviously, in my mind, is you try to raise some revenue to free us to buy the freedom of a slave, which people did. Mm -hmm. That was a practice that people, I don't even know if it was just Northerners, but, but especially Northerners definitely did that practice. So for me, yep. you wouldn't even need to have the debate be completely established. You wouldn't even need to you know, turn them into enemies and commit crimes against them. You could literally try to work with them yeah. civilly. You know, obviously it's going to take a sacrifice on your part. You'll have to, where are you going to get the money from? You know what I mean? Mm. You might have to use your savings or your, you know, and, and to a certain degree, it might not even be feasible, right? right? Like you might be like, that's my dream to be able to help black people, you know, and you just can't do it. And that's what else can you do? You know, you'll right. have to make the choice yourself, whether you think crime is an appropriate response, but I'll point out that just like you did, when you do that, they double down. They don't get softer in their disposition and, and more open to persuasion. They get radical the op in the opposite way. Yep. Yeah. All right. L lessons to be learned in the present day too. Um, right. <laughs> from Definitely. a lot of what we, we, we uh, uh, face nowadays. But anyway, that is another episode. Um, look, Thank you. As always, Josiah, I appreciate it. Uh, there's so much here to unpack. Um, hopefully folks got a lot out of it. Uh, we will hopefully. be back uh, yet yeah, in a little over a week, so probably a week from Thursday, just because we were a little um, slow uh, on the on the uptake here on this one. But um, I, and I say we, I mean me. Um, but uh, <laughs> so but so with that, uh, I have another episode of Ungovernable, Ungovernable coming out Monday night, live at 7. We're going to be talking about crypto. Um, awesome. Hell, what, what, what would the uh, Civil War look like uh, with crypto available? I, I'm, uh, that'd be an interesting piece of fan fiction to write. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. I don't even know. <laughs> um, all, those southern, all the Southern money might still be worth something nowadays if they had some crypto available to them. Um, so uh, anyway... Have a good evening. I appreciate it. Everyone, like, comment, subscribe, share, put it out there. We will see you Monday night. Bye.